0: So please join me in welcoming Dr. Tracy McKenzie to the University of Northwestern. Well, good morning uh, all. Um, I'm really glad to be here. I am thankful for the invitation to um, talk with you a little bit this morning. And um, I'll just say I've been looking forward to it for uh, quite some time. I have had a lot of excitement and also a little bit of anxiety. I, um, I don't do a lot of chapel messages. And so I've, that's a weight on my heart. And so I've been praying for some time that i would have something to say to you today that you need to hear, that would be a blessing for you to hear. So with that in mind, would you pray with me just one more time? I'd appreciate your doing so. So Father God, would you sanctify this time? Would you be glorified among us in it? Would you bless us in it? Lord, please open the eyes of our hearts to behold the insights that you want us to glean. Help us to accept them by faith, store them in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. And now, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. So what we all need, I think, is encouragement each day. Our hearts are weighed down. Our hearts can be heavy. They can feel empty. Our spirits can be dry. We need words of hope and encouragement in life. That's not what I'm going to offer you primarily today. I just want to put that right out there. I want to really acknowledge that this in particular is something that's weighed on my heart. I am here today to warn, to warn you. Dr. Kelly referred to the fact this is Constitution Day, and I am doing a lecture later this afternoon about the Constitution that really is grounded primarily in history, but that's not exactly what I want to share with you this morning. It grows out of that research, but it's not really targeting that research. It's something different. I'm here to warn you. Part of what I want to warn you about is a crisis of American democracy. We need to start there, but then I want to warn you about how that is a crisis for the American church. So, crisis of democracy. If you follow American life at all today, you're probably aware of some of the trends I would call your attention to. Let me just mention three, really quickly. Three things that ought to give us a lot of concern. First of all, trusting government has plummeted. In the early 1960s, the Gallup organization did a poll where they asked individuals about their understanding of government and they asked them, do you trust government uh, to do the right thing? That was the exact words. Do you trust government to do the right thing most of the time? And can you imagine this? 80% of the American people said that they trusted government to do the right thing most of the time, if not all of the time. Anybody want to guess what that percentage is in the most recent Gallup poll? It's 17. So it's it's a little bit above 8, but it's 17% of Americans trust their government. So trust in government has plummeted. Distrust of one another has soared. Partisan polarization is greater today than any time since the end of the Reconstruction era in the mid-1870s. If we went back 30 years ago, opinion polls suggested that about one out of every five Republicans held a very unfavorable view of Democrats. And about one out of every six Democrats held a very unfavorable view of Republicans. Today, those percentages have quadrupled. We now no longer see the other party as well-meaning but misguided we see them as threats to the nation's well-being. They're not political opponents, they're enemies. They're not misguided, they despise what we cherish. They hate what we love, or so we believe. Here's a st- statistic that I've encountered recently, It staggered me when I first encountered it. Did you know, that in America in 2022, interracial marriage is two and one half times more common than the marriage of a Democrat and Republican? So trust in government has plummeted, distrust of one another has soared, and a result of that, I fear, is that disillusionment with democracy is mounting. Even as uh, uh, long ago as 2016, in the run up to the 2016 election, and in a poll, 46% of respondents said they lacked faith in democracy. Increasingly, there are various organizations that are asking Americans to think about different alternatives to democracy. And in multiple surveys over the last decade, there's been a growing number of Americans who uh, say, one probably good form of government would be a government characterized, and I'm quoting directly from the surveys, a strong leader who does not have to bother with Congress or elections. The term for that, the technical term for that is dictatorship, and what percentage of respondents say that could be a good form of government varies between a fourth and two-fifths. As many as 40% of Americans say that perhaps we're done with democracy. Another recent survey suggests that violence — one in three Americans now will say that violence may be necessary to protect the American way of life from its domestic enemies. Our commitment to democracy and denial is waning. And it's declining most of all among you, your generation. The opinion polls show that if you were born before 1940, first of all, you're very old, but secondly, you believe, uh, or at least 80% of you believe that it's imperative to live in a democracy. What if you were born after 1980? The percentage of individuals born after 1980 who think it is essential to live in a democracy drops to three in 10. Trust in government has plummeted. Distrust of one another has soared. Disillusionment with democracy is mounting. G.K. Chesterton, some of you may recognize his name, British Christian writer of the uh, early 20th century, he once observed that nothing so much threatens the safety of democracy as assuming that democracy is safe pretty much time to stop assuming that. So I am deeply concerned by the state of American democracy. I've studied the American Civil War most of my adult life, taught on the American Civil War for 30 years. And from that, I have learned that democracy is fragile. And from that, I have learned that human beings are really good at blundering into catastrophe. There's no reason to believe that we are immune. And yet... That's not my deepest burden. That's not my greatest concern. My primary sense of burden is not about the state of American democracy, as troubling as that is, but about the testimony of the church in this particular political moment. I fear that we are too motivated by resentment rather than love, too much driven by fear rather than hope. I long to see those of us who name the name of Jesus think more Christianly as we think and act politically. But how would we do that? What would that look like? I think what we need to do is to rediscover what you might call a theological anthropology. That's a really big term for saying recovering what the Bible teaches about the human condition, about human nature specifically. And I think a lot of what that means is simply going to two fundamental pillars of God's revelation to us. And we can find that in two brief verses, one single verse on the one hand, and one part of a single verse on the other. So let me just share those with you really quickly. The first is from the first chapter of the book of the Bible, of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1:27. So God created humankind in his own image. Matthew 19, verse 17. Context of this, by the way, What we often remember is the rich young ruler has come to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And in verse 17 of Matthew 19, we hear the words of Christ. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is no one who is good but God alone. Put these two together. Everyone in this room created in the image of God. No one in this room is good. So how do we relate this to thinking about our political moment? How do we relate this to thinking about democracy specifically? Well, I think it's necessary, first of all, to understand what democracy is. It's more than just a system of government. It's more than just a group of political institutions. It's more than a form of government that translates the will of the majority uh, into public policy. Broadly speaking, democracy is always encrusted with a host of widely held popular values that create the foundation for it. Values that lead us to support or believe in or have faith in, democracy. Here is the takeaway point. Here is the significant point for thinking Christianly. What we call democracy, glibly, almost rarely without thinking about it. What we call democracy becomes infused with and informed by a host of values that are shaping our hearts. Some of those values will be noble. Many of them, including the ones we take most for granted, will be in direct conflict with the gospel. Among those values, I think, arguably the most important are those about how we understand human nature. Whether we do so consciously or not, we cannot think about democracy without bringing to bear assumptions about human nature. So how would we begin to go about doing this Christianly? How would we begin to uh, ground our thinking about human nature in the Scripture? Well, we turn to these two passages that I've just alluded to. And from those, we tease out two long long-standing doctrinal beliefs that have been foundational to uh, the church's understanding of the human condition for 2,000 years. The first is what theologians call the imago dei, right? This just Latin for the term image of God. Genesis 1, says we bear the image of God. We occupy a unique place in God's created order. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist says. God has made us only a little lower than the angels. He's crowned us with glory and honor. We bear God's image in several ways. We have an eternal soul. We have a faculty of reason. We have the capacity for moral goodness. We're not just animals with a more developed brain stem. There's a precious dignity in our status as bearers of the one who hung the stars and laid the foundation of the world before the beginning of time. No one, I think, captured this better than C.S. Lewis. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he said this. He said, there are no ordinary people You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these may be mortal. They are mortal, their life to ours is the life of a gnat. But Lewis goes on to say, it is immortals whom we joke with, immortals whom we work with, immortals whom we marry. You might say immortals whom you study with, immortals whom you go to class with. It's also immortals that we snub. It's immortals whom we exploit. It's immortals whom we dismiss with contempt. Perhaps worst of all, it's immortals we simply ignore. This is the idea of imago dei. But the second pillar tells us something very different about the human condition. This is what historically has been referred to as the doctrine of original sin. We don't use that term a whole lot. I think it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. It may be a little bit sometimes confusing to us. What does it mean? Simply tells us that while we are bearers of the image of God, that our rejection of God has disfigured that image, has distorted it, has marred it, not eliminated it entirely, but certainly obscured it. We come into the world with overarching determinations, to rule ourselves, we bristle at submitting to rightful authority, and we're also determined to please ourselves, to pursue various forms of pleasure that God tells us are destructive to our souls. There was a Puritan minister about 400 years ago that had captured this idea wonderfully. Listen to his prayer. And imagine as he is praying, that he is he is imagining himself praying directly in the face of, of Christ. And he says, I see the enormity of my guilt by your crown of thorns, your pierced hands and feet, your bruised body, your dying cries. And then think about the conclusion that he draws from that. Infinite must be the evil and guilt which demands such a price, he says. And then he cries out a heart's cry of lament. He says, sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, following me as a shadow. And in that prayer, we hear the words of Christ to the rich young ruler, there's none who is good but God alone. So what would it mean then? What would it mean to take these two truths and apply them to our fabric of life? We might ask ourselves, do these truths permeate the way we think and speak and act? Do they become the context in which we live and breathe and have our being? let's narrow it down, do they permeate the way we think and speak and act politically? Now I can well imagine that some of you are thinking, well this is just not a question I am interested in or even find relevant because I I don't care about politics. I'm not involved in politics. I have nothing at stake in politics. That may be how you think of yourselves right now. I just wanna suggest this. If the troubling trends that we have delineated in American democracy today continue very long, the day will come when you will not be able to avoid thinking about politics. And when that day comes, you will be bombarded by messages Uh, that will be messages, if you're not careful, that will shape your hearts. Here is the warning, the most important warning I want to share. Not that American democracy is fragile and uh, possibly, arguably, in danger. The warning is that American democracy, not inevitably, but for the most part, preaches a false gospel. And it is shaping our hearts perpetually in ways that I think we're rarely aware of, but much to the danger of our souls. Now, what do I mean by this? There's a whole body of social science literature from the last generation that has arrived pretty much at the same conclusion, it's this. Fact-based political arguments almost never shape anyone's political loyalties. What draws us to support a particular party or movement or figure is instead the stories that we hear. The stories that allow us to imagine, yes, I can situate myself in that story. This story makes sense to me. It describes who I am. It describes my world. We listen to stories that then situate our lives, that explain who we are, who we should fear, where our hope lies. Now, think about that for just a moment. Any story that says who you are, what you must fear, where you must place your hope, is essentially a religious story. So we are bombarded constantly in the public square by political figures giving us religious messages. And all too often, when we listen closely to those messages, they are blatant contradictions of the two pillars of our faith, that we have been created in God's image and that none of us is good. So what we need to do then is to carefully and Christianly scrutinize the stories that we are constantly exposed to. Let me just suggest to you what I think is one of the best ways to do that. There is a Russian Christian 20th century dissident named Alexander Solzhenitsyn that some of you may have have heard of. Solzhenitsyn is born uh, around 1920 in Russia, uh, right in the midst of the Russian Revolution. Uh, At the end of World War II, he is overheard to be critical. He had served in the Russian or the Soviet Army. overheard to be critical of the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, and because of that he is sent to a forced labor camp where he spends the next eight years uh, as a political prisoner. And in the context of that experience, God grants him a revelation that changes the way he sees himself and others. And he summed that up with this observation. He said, the line separating good and evil, have you heard this? The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either. The line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. So, if you want to scrutinize the stories that we're bombarded by daily, ask yourself where is this story drawing the line, the line separating good and evil? Let's do a thought experiment just very quickly here and think about the traditional democratic. And here I don't mean Democratic Party, I mean a message of a democracy. Let's think about how the typical democratic story unfolds. That story for the most part, the sort of generic message in America, has been that we the people, or the individuals of the real America, whatever terminology you want to use, are essentially good. And that the threat to the quality of our life, the threat to the American way of life, lies outside. It's external. That's most obvious in wartime. We see that very clearly in wartime. But the threat to we, the people, is external. Sometimes we hear a variation of this generic message, which says, wait a minute, there are domestic enemies as well. This is a message that often pinpoints particular groups or individuals who are a threat to our well being? One of the most common stories that we hear today is that there are a small group of elites, whether they are Hollywood liberals or academic pointy headed intellectuals or big corporate uh, billionaires, some small group of elites who threaten our well being, who hate what we love, who are determined to undermine our quality of life, and we can restore the just society not by changing our own hearts at all, but by voting for the right candidate or the right party who will defend us from this danger. In some, in some, our public square today resounds with stories that we might characterize as us versus them. Us versus them stories turned out ceaselessly by an outrage industrial complex that manipulates our emotions and profits from our fear. The details vary, but the plot line is simple and it's monotonously repetitive. Our lives would be better off if not for them. We are good, they are not. The stories we tell, in other words, deny that original sin applies to us and denies the image of God applies to them. Another way to summarize it, all of these say, the line that separates good from evil does not run within my heart. It runs between us and them. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, I would just challenge you to take seriously the importance of rhetoric. Rhetoric matters. Christians, particularly in the public square, have fallen into the trap of thinking is all that matters is outcome. All that matters is the policy result. But the stories that we hear in the public square are rhetorical, Trojan horses packed with worldview assumptions. And as often as not, those assumptions are at war with the gospel we proclaim. Second thing that I suggest we must do, is we must revitalize our appreciation of these two foundational truths. We need to marvel anew at the miracle of Imago Dei. We need to feel afresh the weight of original sin reminding ourselves every day that not only does it mark us individually, but that the fall has also left its imprint on every political institution we revere, every political party we champion, every incumbent we cheer, every candidate we might vote for. We need to feel that anew keenly. Now let me be clear, I don't expect that if Christians sort of had an awakening to this, I don't think these us versus them messages are gonna go away immediately. As long as voters reward them, there will be more than enough office seekers willing to proclaim the message that our itching ears are happy to hear. It's good news to hear that we are virtuous and they are evil and that all social problems can be alleviated while leaving our hearts untouched. But even as that message persists, we who strive to follow Christ can resolve not to affirm that message unconditionally and actively to resist it, preventing it from shaping our hearts or defining our faith. Now let me leave you you with just one, I hope, other more hopeful observation. In a way that is paradoxical, but isn't so much of the Christian faith built on paradox, in a way that is paradoxical, embracing the idea of our fallenness is the doorway to a deeper appreciation of God's grace. So let me take us back, and this is where we will end, all right, this morning, with that prayer from the Puritan from 400 years ago. I I gave you one part of that. I want to give you the rest of that. Here's the first part. It's worth repeating. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, following me as a shadow. But this Puritan minister doesn't end there. The next word in this prayer is yet. And it's a glorious yet, yet your compassion yearns over me. Your heart hastens to my rescue. Your love endured my curse. Your mercy bore my deserved stripes. I think that reawakening ourselves to our fallenness not only has the potential, the potential to change the way we respond politically, I know it has the potential to transform our sense of God's love and care for us. Let me say a quick prayer and we're done. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity this morning, I pray that we would find beauty in what you behold in that way. We are created fearfully and wonderfully. We are rebels against your loving rule. And in your mercy and grace, You delivered up your son on our behalf. Lord, may we marvel at such love. Amen.